This morning, if you'd open to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 this morning. Thank our worship team this morning for stretching things out a little bit while I was being youth pastor. <laughs> we'll have to balance that a little bit uh, in the weeks to come. So, If you're in the 915 service and you wonder where's the preacher at, that's where he is. He's being youth pastor, so we'll hopefully be able to alleviate that problem before too long as we seek God's man for that position. First John chapter 1 this morning, we're going to enter into what's going to be about a three-month uh, study of this book. Now, uh, saying that, uh, just understand that we may go in a different direction at some point. This is just my intention at this time for us to walk through this book over the course of the next three months all the way through the end of October. Uh, what we'll do after that, I have no clue, and we may uh, change courses at some point, but for the most part, this will be give you an idea of where we're going to be uh, in, in God's Word over the next several months. So this morning, we're going to cover chapter 1. Uh, I will not cover any of the rest of the, the other four chapters all in one chunk, and I probably shouldn't have done this one this way, as evidenced by my 8 o'clock service and the fact that we got out 10 minutes late, So, uh, but I'm trying, so here we go. <laughs> let's, do, let's do a little background first, John, uh, what John is about and uh, who John was and what this whole book is about. Whenever you approach a book of the Bible, I have a, a common way that I do this, and uh, I this is something that I learned in, in seminary, and it's always helped me, and it could be a great help to you. Whenever you approach a book of the Bible, I kind of think about it like being a treasure hunter, okay? I believe that when we enter into God's Word, we are looking for treasures. We're looking for the words of life, or we're looking for things that are of immense value. And what I want to give you this morning it's kind of the beginning of that treasure hunt. In order to go on the treasure hunt, though, we first have to understand a couple of things. We need to know who our God is. We need to know what we're looking for. And we also need to kind of know where we're headed. And that's uh, some things we'll look at this morning. So I usually ask five questions, a normal investigative questions, who, what, where, when, and why. Okay, those are something that you probably learned in English class a long time ago. But those five questions will kind of set a foundation for us as we study this word together. This may not be the most exciting part of the message, but again, we're trying to lay a foundation here. Uh, so just walk along this with me if you would. First of all, as we get into this book, we understand that John, the writer of this, this epistle, this letter, that this is John the Apostle. Now, if you were to go on uh, Google or go on Bible Gateway and search the name John there in the New Testament, you're going to find that there's more than one John. In fact, the most prominent John mentioned is John the Baptist. He is by far mentioned way more times than this John. But this John that we're dealing with here that wrote the book of 1 John is John the Disciple or John the Apostle. He is the brother of James. He was the youngest of the, of the disciples. And you can kind of picture for yourself this morning, that day in John's life when he encountered Jesus Christ. Out in his fishing boats there with his brother James he and his father Zebedee. By the way, it's just a great name. If you have a son, you ought to name him Zebedee. If you're not going to go with Jeremiah Daniel or something cool like that, you ought to go with Zebedee. That's just a great name. But he was out there in the fishing boat that day, and, they, and they're fishing, normal day. He and his, his partner, the Bible says that he was partners with Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were out there in their boats. They were catching fish. Everything was going pretty well. And then along comes Jesus. And with the shortest sermon ever preached, Jesus calls them 
to be his disciples, simply saying, follow me. Now don't get the picture that this was their first exposure to Jesus, that they were just nuts enough that this guy came along and said, follow me, and they left home, occupation, and everything to go and follow him. We basically believe that John and his brother James were already disciples of John the Baptist. And what had John the Baptist been doing? He had been preparing the way for who? For Jesus. That was all that John's ministry was about, was paving the way for Jesus to come. He was constantly pointing his disciples to one who was greater than he. He said, one, who's, who, whom, one of whom the thongs of his sandals I am not even worthy to tie. And so John and his brother James were looking. They were looking for the Messiah. And when Jesus came, they recognized him. Perhaps they were at the waters that day when Jesus was baptized. They had heard that the Messiah had come and they were looking for him. And so when he came that day, when they were there in the fishing boat and said, follow me, they left everything. They left their homes. They left their occupation. For some, they even left their families. Peter left his wife. How do we know Peter had a wife? Well, John was there on the day when Jesus went into Peter's home and healed his mother-in-law. And you don't get a mother-in-law until you get a wife, right? And that's not a derogatory comment for any of you guys that were thinking that that was a negative comment. I love my mother-in-law very much. I'm just glad she lives three hours away. I'm going to pay for That's just recorded, isn't it? This is, that really wasn't the smartest thing I've said today. So, moving on. In his gospel, in his gospel, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple. And I want you just to... Let's walk through a few pictures in John's life real quickly. This is not, we don't have long, we could have spent an entire message this morning just talking about who John is. I didn't want to do that. We're going to just fly through some things. But he meets Jesus there at the fishing boat. He goes with Jesus to Peter's house, sees him raise Peter's mother-in-law, sees him heal Peter's mother-in-law. And John is there more than any other disciple. John is there at all of the crucial moments in the life of Christ. He had a more intimate walk with Jesus than anyone else, including Peter. We often think of Peter as the foremost of the disciples. But folks, Peter wasn't there at the cross. John was the only one at the foot of the cross that day. He was the one to whom Jesus entrusted his own mother. Peter wasn't the first one to the tomb. Peter was bold enough that he was the first one to run on in, but the Bible says that John, being a little younger and a little quicker, most likely, ran ahead of Peter, and he was the first one of the disciples to see the empty tomb. He was there on the day, one of three disciples that were there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He was one of three disciples. His, him, his brother James, and Peter were the only ones that Jesus brought up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was one of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, the only three that Jesus took into the heart of the Garden of Gethsemane. And surely they could hear His cries as He prayed and asked the Lord to give Him strength for what was to come. John was there, the Bible says, reclining next to Jesus at the table on the night of that Last Supper. I just want you to get this picture that the John that's writing this book had the most intimate 
walk with Christ of any of those disciples. This is the John he writes. He also wrote the Gospel of John. I also write the two letters to follow this one. And he also is the writer of the book of Revelation that we'll talk about a little bit more as we walk through some things this morning. So that's the who. What's the what? The what there on your outline is John is speaking about. What is, why does he write this letter? What's he writing about? And he, what he writes about is three tests of assurance. John's purpose comes out in the material that he's covering. Three tests of assurance that he gives. In other words, how do you know that the faith that you claim to have is real? How do you know that what you're trusting in as a follower of Jesus Christ really is the true faith? How do you know that your belief is going to bring about eternal life? And John gives three clear tests that you're going to see time and time again in this letter. If you're, if you're one who loves the writings of the Apostle Paul, Paul is very linear. He's step one, leads to step two, leads to step three, and then you get to the, the outcome. That's how Paul writes. It's very linear. John will drive you nuts. John, John and Paul are kind of like my wife and I. When I come home from, the, from a day of work, I come home and Beth asks, how was your day? I tend to talk about my day in chronological order, Okay. First I did this, then I did this, then I had this meeting, talked with this person, did this visit, and it's just pretty much chronological order. That's just the way I do things. That's the way I think. That is not the way my wife thinks. In fact, if you're going to figure out my wife's explanation of her day, you almost have to be either a psychic or just really good at putting pieces together because she goes with what she considers to be the most important things and then she'll come back to something else, and we kind of go in circles, and I'm, I'm going, okay, so you did this before or after or what? I don't really know how to put all these pieces together. That's kind of like John. He circles. His, his thought is circular. He comes back to the same themes over and over and over again. But the farther you go, the deeper you go in the whirlpool of John's thought. And the deeper you go, the more beautiful you understand what he's trying to teach. So, Three tests of assurance. The test of love. You'll see this. John writes much about love. What does it mean to love God and to love others? Secondly, the test of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll walk in obedience to me. And John talks much about obedience. And finally, the final test of assurance. How do I know that my faith is real is the test of truth. What am I trusting in? What are the foundational Beliefs of the Christian faith that are non-negotiable. There are many things that are negotiable, but what are the non-negotiables? What is the truth on which we stake our lives? And John's going to lay that out for us as we move through this book together. The where. He wrote from the region of Ephesus uh, to churches in that region. If you look at Revelation 2 and 3 there where John writes, uh, at that time he was on the island of Patmos, but he writes to these seven churches that are in the region of Asia, and all those are right there around Ephesus. Most of these churches, we believe, were founded by John himself. As he left Jerusalem under the Roman persecution as they were coming in, just a few short years before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., John left from there with many of the followers of Christ who were being persecuted. They were scattered by persecution, the book of Acts says, and they went out taking with them the gospel. And John found himself in the region of Ephesus where he spent the larger part of his ministry. And he was there planting churches, preaching the gospel, doing the very things that Christ had called him to do. So he writes here, 
from the church, churches there in Ephesus to those churches. Probably wrote this letter around 90 A.D. That's the win on your outline there. Right around 90 A.D. It gives you an idea of the history. Jerusalem at this point had been sacked by the Romans. The temple had been destroyed. Uh, much of their lives as they had known it as young people were, were utterly destroyed and completely different. I mean, you think about what it would be like if an invading army came in to Breckenridge County, destroyed the courthouse, took all of us as captives. Your life is radically different. And that's exactly what John was dealing with. He wrote this around 90 A.D. after having left Jerusalem, probably before his exile on the island of Patmos. Interesting story about John. Uh, this comes from Fox's Book of Martyrs. John is the only one of the disciples who wasn't executed for his faith, though according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, they tried. They arrested John. They were going to put him to death. And they had a large vat of boiling oil, and their intention was to fry John alive, literally. And the story, the account says, now this is not found in the Scriptures, so this could be somewhat mythical, but take it for what it is. It's been passed down for 2,000 years now. There's probably some truth to it. That they took John, they cast him into this vat of boiling oil, and he came out completely unscathed. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament as they threw him into the fiery furnace. History records that he came out completely unscathed. And knowing that they couldn't kill him, they instead exiled him to this island called Patmos where he, they thought he would probably live out the rest of his days. The historian Eusebius records that he didn't live out the rest of his days there, that uh, he eventually was released from Patmos, went back to Ephesus where he did live out his final years, and he died somewhere around 100 A.D., by far the oldest of the disciples. Uh, and the only one that wasn't killed, though they tried. Why does he write? This will launch us into our text this morning. Why write this letter? Why the letter of 1 John? And why would we spend three months in these five chapters? He tells us, 1 John 5, 13. We're going to come back to this verse time and time again. Hopefully within the next few weeks you'll have this verse memorized because you're going to hear me saying it over and over and over because it's the purpose statement. It's why we would spend time in this book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. It's a message of assurance. I write these things to you who believe. Keep in mind, John in his gospel writes to those who have not yet trusted in Christ to draw them to faith in Christ. John in his epistle writes to those who have already trusted in Christ to lead them to a place of deeper assurance. Let me just say this about assurance of your faith. If you're doubting your faith, if you're not sure, if you're insecure in who you are in Christ, let me just say this. First John, the Apostle John will say this to you. God wants you to have assurance. God wants you to be confident in who you are in Christ. Not confidence in yourself, not confidence in your works, not confidence in the church you go to or the pastor you sit under, not confidence in anything that you could say or do or anything other than this, that Jesus Christ poured out His blood for you on the cross. And because of this, you can have confidence in who you are in Christ. So he writes these things so that we may know. That word know occurs 38 times in this short book. He wants us to know. And we're going to talk about that word more as we move through this book in the coming weeks. 
Let's jump right in. First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand with me as we honor God's Word this morning? John writes these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. And you can be seated. Father God, as we are seated together this morning, God, I simply pray that You would teach us Your Word. Gently, patiently, opening blind eyes and deaf ears that we would see this morning the great treasures of Your Word. And that we would walk away this morning having a deeper confidence in who we are in Christ. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the One who upon the cross said, It is finished. So enable our understanding this morning. And enable us to walk in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right here from chapter 1, John gets right down to the brass tacks of what does it mean to be a true follower of Christ. And he gives us two things right here in this first chapter that will become foundational for all the other things that he's going to speak about. John is laying the groundwork for the next four chapters. And let me give you those two things. First of all, John speaks of these two realities for the believer. The first one is this, that all true believers have fellowship with God in Christ. All true believers have fellowship with God in Christ. Now that word fellowship occurs a couple of times here in this first chapter. And the Greek word is the word koinonia. And the picture of this word is a picture of communion, of relationship. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it's the picture of two people in relationship walking down the road of life together. That's the picture of koinonia. Walking down the road of life 
together, going in the same direction, based in a common faith, common goals, based in a common understanding of who God is and who we are as His children. This is koinonia. And he says here, first of all, that those who are in Christ, those who are truly walking with the Son of God, have put their faith in Him and have received this gift of eternal life, they have fellowship with God. They are walking with God. Their life is characterized by this kind of communion. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, it's based in what John says there in those first four verses. First of all, he speaks about the revelation of of the life. Now these things will come together as we put the pieces together this morning. But he begins this letter very much like he begins his gospel. Remember the first verse of John chapter 1 when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And he goes on to tell us in just a few short verses later, he says, And the Word is Jesus Christ. He explains it to us very clearly when he says, I'm talking about the Word, I'm talking about the Word is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the most complete revelation of God that's ever been given. God's revealed Himself in nature. To a certain extent, we see the glories of God in His creation. We find God revealed in the Bible. But the most complete revelation of who God is happened when Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into the world. And though none of us have ever seen God, He said, when you see Me, to know Me is to know the Father. And that word know is the same word John uses here intimate, relational knowledge. Walking down the road of life together. Speaking with one another. Listening to one another. Being in relationship with one another. That is the picture. And so he says, this life, the life of Christ, has been made manifest us. And he repeats that. John likes to repeat himself, which I kind of do as well. You'll probably get, get a little annoyed by that. But he likes to repeat himself so that we'll get the picture. He says, the life, the life of Christ was made manifest to us, revealed to us. He didn't stay hidden. He did not stay behind some mask. There was this myth that was going around even in John's day that when Jesus came, He was just a figment. He was just a, 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 almost like a, a disguised image of who God is. They didn't believe. There were some that were trying to teach that Jesus was just a portion of God, but not fully God. Or that He was... Yes, He came in a body, but God couldn't, in their belief, they, could, they would say God couldn't take on a body, and so Jesus was just kind of a dual personality, almost like a schizophrenic type deal. Yeah, He was kind of man, kind of God, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that He was fully God and fully man, and that when He entered into the world, it was to reveal God to us in His fullness. And folks, that's what John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. When the glory of God was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, John saw Him for who He really was. And when John ran to the tomb that day, after he had seen Him die on the cross, when John ran to the tomb that day and all he found there were the clothes in which he was wrapped, those grave clothes laying there, exactly as they would have been had they been wrapped around His body. And John records in his Gospel, he says, and in that moment, I believed. 
When I saw the grave clothes, I believed. When I saw the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, I believed this is no mere man. And this is not half man, half God. He is fully God and fully man. And He is revealing the nature of God, the life of God to us. But not just a revelation of the life. Not only was the life made manifest, but He also says there in verses 3 and 4, this is the life that must be proclaimed. The life that must be proclaimed. How many of you guys have been watching the Olympics the last couple of weeks? I want to thank those that have invited us over. We don't have anything that we can watch the Olympics on, but we are kind of addicts ourselves, and so we thank those who have invited us over to watch the Olympics these last couple of weeks, and we love it. We love it. There's so many great stories and there's these life-changing moments. You know, people that you never expected to win, they win, they stand upon the podium. There's just a great, it's just a great energy. I'm glad it's not every year because I would probably never get anything done. But it's really a great time and those of you that have been watching have seen some great things happen already. But imagine what it would be like. Imagine what it would be like if you had an Olympic athlete Let's say Missy Franklin, for instance. I, I kinda, she's been pretty awesome to watch. And she wins a gold medal. Maybe she wins a gold medal that she wasn't even supposed to win. There's this great moment that happens. She wins, and she's going to be up on the podium. And they take that, that necklace with the gold medallion hanging at the bottom of it, and they place that around her neck. And then you know what comes next, right? The reporter's. The interviews, they're going to ask her, what did it feel like to win? What, how did it feel when they placed that gold medal around your neck? What, and tell us what all's going through your head and what's going through your mind. And what if Missy Franklin said, you know what? I'd really rather not do any interviews. What's happened to me is here is a private and personal matter. And I'd really just rather not talk about it. In fact, I'm going to take this gold medal home with me and I'm going to stick it in my desk drawer. And I may show it to a few folks if they really ask about it, but for the most part, this has been something that's just been private and personal in my life and I really don't want to share about it with anybody else. What would you think about Missy Franklin? You think, that girl has lost her mind. This great thing has happened to her and she doesn't want to talk about it? This life-changing event has taken place. She is an Olympic athlete. She has won a gold medal. How many people can say that? And she doesn't even want to talk to the interviewers? You would think she has lost her mind. But folks, we as followers of Christ have something so much greater. There is no gold medal in the world. You could win every Olympic event that's ever been created And still, you would have nothing in comparison with what you have in Jesus Christ. The life that was revealed to John, he says, and I was there, I saw Him, I heard Him, I touched Him. This is eyewitness account, he said, and that is the life I'm proclaiming to you. John would say to you this morning, he says, I feel like that I've stood at the top of the metal stand. That I've achieved the greatest victory and yet I know I didn't do anything to achieve it. That He put that medal around my neck and I did nothing to earn or to deserve it. And how then can I take that which was given to me and stick it in a desk drawer? Or stick it in my back pocket only to pull it out on Sunday mornings? 
If the life has been revealed to you, then you will proclaim it. If your life has been radically changed, how can you keep silent? And that's what John is saying. That's what John is saying to us. This life is revealed and this life is to be proclaimed by those who have fellowship with God because of what Christ did. John 20.31, this is a statement, a key statement of John's Gospel when he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John says, I want you to have life. I want you to know the real, true, and abiding life. I want you to know that it's been revealed. This is, this is not some trickery by God that you've got to figure out these codes and these, and these conspiracies in order to know how you can have this life. He's saying He's offering it to you freely in Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Three days later, He was raised from the dead so that you could have resurrection, eternal, everlasting life in Him. This is not rocket science. This is the simple truth of the Gospel. And the good news is this, it is for every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever, ever lived on this planet. No one is excluded. This offer is available to all. Number two on your outline there. First of all, we have fellowship with God in Christ if we're walking with Jesus, if we're truly believers. And second, we have fellowship with others in Christ. It goes back, and John time and time again refers to that great commandment. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? They were trying to trick him, I believe. And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second, you didn't ask about this, but the second is like it. In other words, they're twins. They go together. You can't have one without the other. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for many of us, we love the first commandment. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah, that's great because God is good and God is faithful and God has been good to me and He's been faithful to me. And so, yeah, I can love God and I can come in and I can worship God. But that second commandment, that's a little bit more difficult. Because people are difficult. And because sin has marred our relationships with one another. And we don't want to love people because they hurt us. But Jesus said, these two go together. And that's exactly what John teaches all the way through this letter. And every time he talks about the love for God, he's going to talk about love for others. These are twins, and we see them here in this first chapter. Fellowship with others in Christ. And he gives two pictures here to help us understand what this fellowship looks like. First of all, in verses 5-7, through seven, he talks about light versus darkness. Let's, let's read it again there together since we've... Been away from it for a minute. Verses 5 through 7. So, this is the message that we have heard from him. We proclaim to you. There's that passing on of the good news that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him when we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There it is. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So the first picture is light versus darkness. That there are those in this world who are walking in the light and there are those in this world who are walking in darkness. And John, as you will see throughout the entirety of this book, he leaves no room for any gray area. 
Now, we love gray area. We love to make a place for people to sit the fence. We, we love that kind of stuff. And we, we want to have little caveats. Well, it's not just this or this, but there's also some little caveats here that we want to make. And John says, no caveats. No fence. There's nothing. There's nobody sitting on the fence. There's a dividing line. There are those who are walking in the light, and there's those who are walking in darkness. It's just like you go, how many of you have been to, to Mammoth Cave? This is a great example of this. In Mammoth Cave, they'll take you on a tour, and they'll take you down deep into the heart of the cave, and it takes forever to get down there. There's all these steps, and you get down there, and then there's these benches down there. And they'll seat the whole tour group down on these benches, and then they flip the lights off. And it is the deepest, blackest darkness. I mean, to say you can't see your hand in front of your face is, is almost laughable. You can't see anything at all. And that's the kind of darkness that Paul's talking about here. Folks, he's trying to give us the picture that there, there's no dawn and there's no dusk in the Christian life. There's light and there's darkness. And when you're in the heart of Mammoth Cave, you understand clearly, you know certainly that the lights are either on or they're off. There's no question. And that's the kind of picture that John is saying here. You are either walking with Christ and walking in the light, or you're not walking with Christ and walking in the darkness. There is no room left in John's understanding of the Gospel, which would be my understanding of the Gospel as well. There is no room left for gray area. You're either in Christ or you're not. And that's not meant to be a harsh statement to exclude people, but it's meant to be a definitive statement to help us to understand the reality of where we are and where we might not be. You're either walking in light or walking in darkness. What does it mean to walk in light? When he says God is light, he's saying God is holy. God is perfect. God is sinlessly perfect in every way. There is no darkness. He says not only is He light, He is light, but He says there is no darkness in Him at all. At all. 100%. There's no darkness in Him at all. No gray area once again. And that is what God is calling us into. So you would ask the follow-up question would be, so does that mean John's teaching sinless perfection here? Let me go ahead and answer that for you. No, that's not what John is teaching. Remember the key word fellowship? That walking with God and walking with one another? That doing life together? That's the picture all through this book. He's saying those who are walking with Christ are becoming more and more like Christ. Why? Because they're with Christ. Just like bad company corrupts good character. My mom used to quote that to me every day, it seemed like, as a teenager. The opposite's true as well. Good company forms good character. And when you're in the company of Christ, you become more like Christ. You become like that which you hang around with. And that's the picture that John is painting here. As you walk with Christ, you become more like Christ. And it's not saying that one day on this life you'll have, a, you'll have achieved, you'll have gotten to that place where you are now on top. It's not the picture of this place where you'll say, well, now I'm perfect and I don't have to worry about all that junk anymore. And that's not what he's saying. But he's saying the more you walk like Christ, the more you walk with Christ, the more you become like Christ. It's that simple. And so what does that mean? It means this, folks. Ten years from now, I should look more like Jesus than I do right now. And I can tell you this from my own testimony. I believe I look more like Christ now than I did ten years ago. 
That is no glory for me, only glory for Christ. That He has done a good work in me. He says, He who's done a good work in you will bring it to its completion. One day we will find ourselves sinlessly perfect. One day we will, one day we will know what it means to be able to enter into the, the holy presence of God without shame, without rebuke. But for now, we struggle, don't we? The more we walk with Jesus, the more we'll become like Jesus. But the more we walk in the darkness, the more we become like the darkness as well. And John would say to us this morning, it's either one or the other for you. Are you becoming more like Christ because you're walking with Him? Or are you becoming more like this world because you're walking in darkness? And if you think you get to just sit down in the middle of the road somewhere and stay there, It doesn't work that way. So walk with Christ. Second picture he gives, verses 8 through 10, and we're going to fly through this one because we're very short on time, is a picture of sin versus righteousness. And this, 1 John 1 9, is the most familiar of all the verses in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's this dividing line again between sin and righteousness. And it's the same dividing line as he makes between darkness and light. Darkness and light is merely a picture of the difference between sin and righteousness. He's using that as an analogy to help us to understand, to give us a picture of what it's like, that mammoth cave type picture of either the lights are on or they're not. Either you're growing in righteousness or you're not. And that is what he is saying here And he goes through this and he says, so what do we do with the sin problem? Well, let me give you a few things that we could do. Let me give you a few things that we could do. Three responses to sin this morning that we could take. Let me just go ahead and say this to you this morning. The greatest problem of mankind is not political. It is not educational. It is not even relational. The greatest problem of mankind is spiritual and it's a sin problem. Poverty is not our greatest enemy. Who or who is not elected is not our greatest issue. Sin is the greatest issue of mankind. And every other problem that we experience stems from that. It is a tiny little word that has enormous ramifications. And ultimately the ramification is this. If you continue to be a captive of sin, the only result is death. And I don't say that this morning to point my finger at you. If you'll notice, my fingers are pointing at myself right now. I don't say this to bring condemnation into your life. I say this to warn you and to plead with you to turn away from sin and to run to Christ. That's the picture of repentance. The 180 degree turn. It's not the picture of just sitting down in the road of life and saying, well, I'm just going to park here. You're either going to walk with Christ toward eternal life or you're going to walk with sin toward eternal death. Three responses to sin. We're going to touch on these real quickly. He gives them to us in verses 8, 9, and 10. Three responses to sin. First of all, deception. These are not on your outlines. It's something I added yesterday. But Three responses to sin. The first one is deception. They're in verse 8. Now, we can, first of all, we can deceive others. And aren't we great at that? Aren't we great at deceiving others to make them think that we're better than we really are? 
Aren't we great at that? We want to put on the happy face and we want to show people what all the great things that we've done and we want the accolades and we want to kind of for people to see us as that one who's made it to the medal stand and we're at the top of our class. We can deceive others, but we can also, folks, the deceiving others leads to this. Eventually, we deceive ourselves. And self-deception is the worst kind of deception. To think that I'm something that I'm not. To, to have believed the lie. And John says, don't be a liar and don't believe the lie. Know the truth and the truth will set you free, Jesus said. The first one response to sin is deception. The second is denial. He said, if we say we have not sinned, if we say we have not sinned, not only do we lie, but we make God out to be a liar. The same one who said all of sin and comes short of the glory of God. And we say, well, I've not sinned. Now, none of, us, none of us would probably come out and say that. Say, I've not sinned, but we might deny our sin in particular areas. Well, yeah, I've got a little sin here and there. We kind of minimize it, scrape it under the rug, you know. It's, but it's not really that big of a deal. My sin's not as bad as so-and-so's. Let me tell you this, folks. For, for far too long, many of us have tried to live our lives on the scales. Living your life on the scale means this. You'll take yourself and put yourself on one side of the scale. All your good works, all your accolades, all the wonderful things you've done. And you'll put something else on the other side. For some of us, we believe that that scale is weighed out like this. I'm going to put all my good works on one side, all the wonderful things, all my accolades, all my gold medals on one side. And on the other side, I'm going to put all my sin. And surely at the end of my life that God will look at that scale, a righteous judge will look at that scale and He'll say, well, if I were to compare your righteousness to your sinfulness, your good works to your evil works, well then it pretty much weighs out here good and, and your, your good outweighs your bad and so come on into my heaven. If that's what you're living for, folks... There's only one place that that will put you in an eternity in hell. You will never make it into heaven that way. And for some of us, we will look at that and we'll not put, we'll put ourselves on one side of the scale and we'll put other people on the other side of the scale and we'll say, you know what? I may not be the best person in the world, but I'm better than so-and-so. And we live our lives making those comparisons, weighing our life out in the scale and thinking that we will somehow come on on top. And the truth of the Gospel is this, you will never come out on top because God does have a scale. God does have a scale, folks. And He will weigh you in it one day. And on one side of that scale will be you. All of your good, all of your bad, everything that you've said and done. But on the other side of that scale will not be other people. It will be Jesus Christ. And you will not be able to compare to Him. He's perfect and sinless in every way. Not one word that escaped from His mouth was ever an error. No deceit was found in Him. Utterly perfect. And if you want to stick yourself in that scale, just understand... taking your life in your own hands this is a matter of life and death but the amazing thing about Jesus Christ is this he stepped off the scale and stepped onto the cross so that when you look to Christ 
When you understand what Christ has done for you, you understand that all your good works really are filthy rags. There's nothing that I have in comparison with Him. That if I try to weigh myself in the scale, I will lose every time that Jesus stepped off that scale and stepped onto the cross so that you could have life through faith in Him, that your works won't cut it, but His will cut it every time. And know what He said on the cross, it is finished. He said that for you. Your sin problem is finished. Your death problem is finished. The scales are finished. And now, and now, you can have the righteousness of God in Him. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might in Him become the righteousness of God. I don't fully understand that verse, but I do receive it. The final response to sin is this. Confession. But what does it mean to confess my sins? What does 1 John really mean? 1 John 1, 9, what's that verse that we, many of us have known since our days in vacation Bible school? It's one of the first verses I ever memorized. To confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does He mean by that? The word confess is the Greek word homo legeo. And it's, composed, it's a compound word composed of homo, which means the same as, and legeo, which means a word spoken. So here's what it means. To confess my sin means to say the exact same thing about my sin that God does. It means to speak the same word, literally. To confess my sin means to say the exact same thing about my sin that God does. If we confess our sins, we say the same thing that God says. What is that? It's two words, folks. The first one, my first confession is this. Guilty. I'm guilty, God. I've sinned against you. As David said, against you only have I sinned. Even in what he did with Bathsheba, adultery, Uriah, murder, covering it up the whole nine yards, David was able to say, against you only have I sinned. And other people will probably come in the middle of the picture there and go, whoa, hold on a minute, David. What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about all the things that happened here? What about being the king of your country? But David said, against you only have I sinned, Lord. And he wasn't, he wasn't minimizing anything. He was saying, I have sinned against a holy God and I am guilty, deserving of His utter condemnation, but He has offered me life. And folks, David was able to say that before the cross. How much more can we say, God, I'm guilty. I've sinned against you. I have rebelled against you. I have not cared for your ways and I've gone my own way. I've pushed you off the throne of my life and put myself there. That's what sin is, folks. Sin is not just that I do a few bad things. We love to minimize sin in our culture. To say that the things that God has called evil aren't really so bad. To redefine our relationship so that anything goes. Because, you know, as long as you love somebody, that's all that really matters, right? Folks, we've missed it. When we redefine sin, we are redefining the just law of the holy God who put it into place in the first place. And we have no right to do that. So the first word we have to say in confession of sin is, God, I'm guilty. I think about Chuck Colson. Many of you know Chuck Colson as the star of the president, founder of Prison Fellowship. But before Chuck Colson became a believer, Chuck Colson was 
Richard Nixon's right-hand man. And many of you know Chuck Colson's story that he was indicted during the Watergate hearings. There was indictments made, but at that point in his life, Chuck had been just far enough removed from the presidential uh, dealings that he was going to get off scot-free. He, he wasn't going to be indicted, wasn't going to be convicted of those charges related to Watergate. But in Chuck Colson's own autobiography, it's a book called Born Again, and it is powerful. It is a powerful book of, of Christ's transforming power in his life. Having come to Christ and then entered into those hearings, those indictments, standing before those judges, and knowing from all of his lawyers saying, you're going to get off scot-free, you're not going to serve any jail time, they don't have enough to hold you on. Chuck Colson came under conviction. And he knew that he had done some things that were wrong. And he stood there in, the lawyer, in his lawyer's office one day and he said, I've got to plead guilty. His lawyer said, you are a fool. You're an idiot. You're going to get off scot-free. What are you doing? And his lawyer even said, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to find yourself another lawyer. I will not be your lawyer. You're an idiot if you're going to confess guilt here. And Chuck said, I've got to do it. And so he confessed to what at that time was not even considered a crime. And I wrote it down here. He confessed to disseminating derogatory information to the press about a man named Daniel Ellsberg, who had been one of his political rivals. Basically, he had leaked some stories about this man that were untrue. And years later, he's confessing to a crime that at that point wasn't even considered a crime, but in Chuck's heart he knew it is a crime. What I did was wrong, and I deserve to be, fun, to be punished. And so he did. He, he pleaded guilty. He was convicted. He served jail time out of that. Came prison fellowship and all the wonderful things that have come as a result of that ministry. But Chuck Colson knew what it meant to confess his sin and say, I'm guilty. Even when he could have gotten off scot-free. That's the first word of confession. The second one is this. If I were to leave you with guilty, there's no hope, folks. Because we're all guilty, whether you're going to confess it or not. The second word of confession is this. Forgiven. Forgiven. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to what? To forgive us of our sins. How can God forgive us of our sins? You know, the key question... In our culture today, in relation to the Gospel, people want to ask this question. They constantly want to ask, how can God condemn us? How could a loving God send people to hell? That's the most prominent question in Christianity today. How could a loving God possibly send people to hell? But the real question of the Gospel, folks, what Paul addresses, what Peter addresses, and what John addresses here is this. Not how could a loving God send people to hell, but how can a just God bring sinful people into heaven. How can He forgive us? Upon what right? We are murderers in His court. We have lied in His court. We have committed every trespass. We have broken all of His laws. We are completely and totally guilty. If there were any judge, we think about judges in our land who have been ridiculed. I think about one a couple of years ago. It was a child abuse, a molestation case. Multiple counts of molestation and the judge gave this man six months in prison. And there was an outcry, outrage. How in the world? This is not justice. 
How wrong is this? This man has destroyed a young boy's life and you're going to give him six months in prison? How unjust is that? We cry out about injustice, but understand that if God merely sweeps our sin under the rug, if He says, oh, that's no big deal, I'll just pat you on the back and let you on into my heaven, then He is no longer good, He is no longer just, and you do not want Him as your God. The question of the Gospel, folks, is how? How can a just God forgive our sins? And the answer is so simple. Jesus Christ. He's the answer, folks. He is the answer to our sin problem. He is the answer to our death problem. He is the answer to our lack of fellowship with God. He is the answer to our broken relationships with others. He is the answer. And He calls us to faith in Him. So where does this leave us today as we wrap things up? Just let me say to you this morning, you will make one of those three responses to the sin in your own life. Some of you will choose the path of deception. Cover it up. Lie to others. Lie to yourself. Pretend like it never happened. Pretend like it's not going on. Pretend like you're not a slave to it. Pretend like you can beat that according to your own efforts, your own works. For some of you it will be denial. That's not really sin. That's not really a big deal. There's no, no real problems in my life. I'm for the most part a good person. Guys, let me tell you something. The Bible teaches one thing pretty clearly. There are no good people. You may not like to hear that, but there are no good people. There is none who are righteous. No, not one. None of us are good people. So we can deceive ourselves, we can deny the truth, or we can come to that place of confession where I say the same thing that God says, God, I am guilty. I am guilty of sin, but I know that because of what You did in Jesus Christ at the cross that I can have forgiveness and I don't deserve it. And I may question it and I may wonder why in the world could this be happening? How could You forgive me after all that I've done and all the things that I might do in the future? Past, present, and future, He says forgiven because of what Jesus did at the cross. And He offers you that this morning. And you can leave this place and go on in deception, go on in denial, or you can come to Him and confess your sin. Say, God, I'm guilty, but I want to be forgiven. And God is faithful to forgive. And He's also just to forgive. It is right for Him to, get, to forgive because Jesus' sacrifice for you was of infinite worth. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John wrote that too. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have covered a lot of territory today and so much more to be covered. But I pray more than anything in this moment, God, I pray for the clarity of the Gospel. That if we leave with nothing else this morning, that we would know this. That we are great 
sinners, but we have an even greater Savior. That we are deserving of death, but You have offered us life in Christ. That our righteousness, our own personal righteousness, even our good works are like filthy rags before You. But that You offer us to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, may we not deceive ourselves. May we not deny the truth that we are guilty. That if we were to stand before You apart from the righteousness of Christ, there would only be one sentence for us. Death. Eternal separation from You. But that because of what Christ has done, because of the sacrifice at the cross that was of eternal worth, through faith in Christ, when we trust in Him, we have life. Life in abundance. Life in eternity. And God, I pray for us this morning. I pray for those who would sit here in this place doubting what they have in Christ. I pray that You would give them assurance this morning that if they are truly walking with You, that they have eternal life. That it is sure not because of their resources, but because of Yours. That it is totally assured because of the work of the cross. And I pray for those who would be sitting here, perhaps having deceived themselves, would You open their eyes to see the reality of what it means to trust Christ, to walk with Him, to give their lives to Him, to proclaiming this message of grace in and through their lives. This is a Gospel moment, Lord. Good news being proclaimed. Reveal Yourself to us and draw us to faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have not received the Gospel, if you have not received Christ as the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul, would you come this morning? It would be my honor to pray with you and teach you about what it means to follow Christ with your life. The Word's been preached. Now you respond as the Lord leads you as we sing together. The Word. Thank you for the privilege of proclaiming it. And now, Father, now may we live what's been proclaimed to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.